So how are we supposed to know who Jesus is and what his teachings are about? Sometimes I get that question from people who either are de-churched, meaning they were in church for a while and they don't really know much about faith or Christianity, or just people in general who are more and more people, they only know what they hear on TV or on the radio or, or what something else that gets reported to them, or how they're treated by people who purport to be Christians. And what I often say to those folks is, well, to get a great introductory piece about who Jesus is, read the Gospel of Mark. I mean, it's short, it doesn't have the birth narrative, and it ends right after, sort of on this very strange note, right after Jesus is resurrected. And and, and so you can get a picture of his life and, and a little bit of his teachings. But then I say, if you, if you want to know more about Jesus' teaching, the longest discourse of his teachings are in the Gospel of Matthew, starting in chapter 5, and it's called the Sermon on the Mount. Right. And why is that? Because it says, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him, and then he began to speak. So he went up. So it's the Sermon on the Mount. In Luke, there's a similar uh, grouping of teachings that, that sound very, uh, you know, very similar. It's not as long as the one in Matthew. It's called the Sermon on the Plain because in that one, for whatever reason, it says he went, he went down and he sat on a level place. It's very interesting. What we can deduct from all of that is that these are probably Matthew and Luke taking teachings of Jesus that happen probably at different times, more than likely, probably not all in one series, but in, in Matthew, it is the largest collection of these teachings all in a row. So you just start with chapter five and you just keep on, keep on going for a good while if you want to do it. Now, the thing about scripture that I'm relearning all the time is that we often come to it, even those of us who've been raised in the church, and maybe even, maybe even some of us because of we've been raised in the church, we come to the scripture thinking it is a holy book and that it is going to give us holy principles. And every time we read it, we are going to walk away enlightened and encouraged for our journey. Well, as I've been rereading scripture starting in Genesis and, and working, my way, working my way through again in 2020, I'm just reminded that most of the time I come away from reading some of the stories in the Bible with a big question mark. What was that about? Where's God in this? What's happening here? And so sometimes when we ask the question of the scripture, you know, how am I supposed to live because of this? I think we're, we're sometimes asking the wrong question. But I do believe that as we allow Scripture to, 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 those stories of Scripture and these teachings become part of who we are, as we let it imbue us with, with knowledge and with understanding, and, and we begin to see things differently, we begin to notice things a little bit differently, we begin to see where the God flavor is in a particular situation. We begin to sense where the God color is in particular places. Because these stories become our story. Now, there is teaching, of course. I mean, Jesus has commandments for us. There are the Ten Commandments. There are lots of other places where there is, there is sort of direct teaching for us. But oftentimes, it's confusing, at least in my mind. 
especially as we come to this. The Sermon on the Mount, it's the largest discourse, as I said, in Matthew. It contains the Beatitudes, which we've been singing and you've heard read. We've sung them twice now. And it contains the Lord's Prayer. So, and there's just a whole host of teaching. And a lot of it, because we're going to walk through all of it over the next four or five weeks. A lot of it is very pointed and very uncomfortable. So just get ready. Because again, the scripture is not, you know, some holy book where we, where we just pull out some phrase and we just feel enlightened and, and wonderful. There are some places in there where it's like that, but not as many as most of us would like. We'd love to come to that. And especially the Sermon on the Mount, it is, a lot of people just read it as sort of a personal righteousness or a personal faith sort of thing. Always remember, Jesus didn't leave us a theology. He left us a lot of teachings, he, but he never wrote a book. He left behind what? A community, a group of people. So, so always be thinking, how does this apply to me? But then how does this apply as we are a community? And how does this apply then as we seek to, to build community and as we seek to be the community of Christ out in the world? As we go through these Beatitudes today, one of the things that I, I hope that you'll notice and that strikes me is that these Beatitudes for me are a real check on what I think being blessed means. Because it's often exactly the opposite of, of what we might think of as being blessed in our world today, and I think even in the world then. These Beatitudes move us and challenge us from thinking that we are just dependent on ourselves, that we've got control, that we can, we can do all these things, that, that, that we, we have the ability to to move forward and, and do all those things, whatever we want in our lives, and it moves us to more of a dependence on God's grace because we realize that that is what God is giving us at all times. That's what God wants us to receive. And as a preacher last week preached about, we are really bad receivers of grace. Most of us are great at giving things, right? We can give things to people. We feel good when we give things to people. We have a really hard time receiving things and especially then something that we didn't earn, a gift of grace. We'd much rather be obligated to somebody else. I give Aaron a gift. She feels like, oh, well, then the next time it comes around, I need to give him a gift. Okay. No, 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 no. That's not God's grace. God's grace is a free gift, and that's what, if that doesn't mess with your head and mess with what we do as a culture, then I don't know what will. Just spend some time meditating on that. So blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In Luke, it says, blessed are the poor. And some people said, well, Matthew spiritualized this. Well, I don't think so. I, he, I think he literally means blessed are the poor, and blessed are the poor in spirit, both of those. And doesn't that sort of flip things? Because have you ever thought of somebody who's poor as blessed? No. But what's interesting about when you work with folks who live in some poverty or who, who live closer to not having as many means as most of us do, there are a lot fewer things that get in the way of their relationship with God because guess what? They don't have a lot of control over things. You know, when, when they get sick, 
they often just can't go to the doctor because they don't have the money. They've got to They've got to figure out some different ways to do things. I'm not saying that's right. I'm just saying that's the way it is. You know, the food isn't always in the fridge. So where's that going to come from? How do we get that? As you read the scripture, people begin to go, well, what if, what if it really is true that God does provide for all of our needs? It's not just me providing for our needs. What does that do to our spirit? What, is that, what does that do? It's almost like it cleans it up a little bit. Those of, us who, those of us who have some affluence, and, and many of us don't think we do, but we do, we have lots of filters about things and about how things should be and about how we often how we got that on our own and all of that. But as, when we take a lesson from those who are poor, we begin to start backing away from that, to see things a little differently. Again, these concepts are not easy to get. They aren't things where it's like, oh, I feel so much better about myself now. I'm, I'm ready to go on and love God. I just need to clear away some things. It says, best of the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus turns on its head this notion that it is those who seem like they're blessed by God, those who have riches and wealth, those who have big families, those who, those who have everything that they need or the desire by their own hand, that those are the ones who have the kingdom, that those are the ones who are blessed by God. He turns that on its head to give his disciples something different to think about. It checks our thoughts on what blessings are and who is blessed. Some of what this one is about, I think, this blessed are the poor in spirit is, we gotta stop making our lives just about us. Gotta stop making our lives just about us. What our wants and needs and desires are all the time. Me, me, me. That goes so contrary to our culture, right? But I think that Jesus is calling us to that because I think what he wants to say to us is, I've given you everything. I'm giving you everything. So don't act like you got it all on your own. Come to me being poor in spirit with no filters. Come to me and, and be dependent on me for my grace is sufficient for you. Here's one that was gonna challenge some things. Blessed are those who mourn for you they will be comforted. I mean, I, hopefully that gives some hope to those who are mourning, right? But most of us don't think of those who have lost people in their lives. We think when we say mourn, we often think about deaths in the family or, or something that's very close to us like that or um, that, that that's why we're mourning. But there are, there are things that we mourn all the time. A lost job, a lost opportunity, a lost relationship, even though the person's still sort of in our lives. Um, all those kinds of things. Those are all, those are all kinds of things that we can mourn. One, one writer, I think it's from the message translation, says, when you've lost all that you hold dear, you can finally be held by God. When things get stripped away, when you've lost all that you've held dear, there's an opportunity for you to be held by God. For some people, when, when they have lost what they hold dear, their job or there's a death in the family or whatever, it, it makes them cling on to things even more. It makes them angry and selfish 
a little bit self-righteous sometimes. It happens because they're hurting so bad. But there's an opportunity there, and I believe God so much wants to break into all of those times of mourning and give us comfort. We call the Holy Spirit the comforter, the one who would imbue us with God's grace, would hold us in God's arms and walk us through those times. And so these deaths in our lives, these things when we lose them, they are again opportunities for us to be opened up to the grace of God. And I know that that's no fun. I've mourned for many things in my life and it is not a good time. We'd much rather not lose those people or those opportunities. But when we trust the grace of God so much that we can let it break us open to God's grace, to trust that whatever we've lost is not lost in God, we have an opportunity to grow in faith and become disciples even more. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. This is almost a direct quote from one of the Psalms. And the meek, as you've heard me talk about that, and I sort of equate this to humble as well. Blessed are the humble. And and for me, humility is not making yourself less than you are. It It is really, it's really about being content with just who you are. What would what would my colleague in the faith, Mr. Fred Rogers, the Reverend Fred Rogers, what would he say? I like you just the way you are. And I think God says that to us. I created you and I like you. I like you just the way you are. I love you. Blessed are the meek. Don't think, don't think so more highly of yourself. Don't think less of yourself. For you will inherit the earth. It's an interesting sort of turn of phrase that I don't exactly know what to make of. But what I love is underneath of that is we don't have to be something we're not in order to please God. God is already pleased with us. Yes, God loves us so much that God's not gonna leave us where we are. God wants us to be growing and to be challenged in faith and all of that. But at the same time, it's this really interesting thing that goes on that God loves us right where we are, just as we are. And is also calling us forward to inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. A lot of writers talk about that, that, that this is actually might literally mean blessed are those who are hungry. Blessed are those who are hungry. Again, because it drives us back, drives us back to dependence on God's grace. Again, these are not things, as, as I talk through these, these are not things that, oh, well, I should strive to be hungry. Should figure out a way to, to, to have my life be such that I'm, that I'm hungry all the time. That'll help me, you know, get closer to God. Well, okay, that would be weird, right? But what are some of the things that people have done over, over time? They fast. They pray because it creates an opening. Again, it's about creating an opening for, for God's grace to come in and God to fill us with the things of God. Now, there's also this part of this, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness could, could also be translated who thirst for God's justice. That's where some of the social ethic comes in. Some of this community ethic comes in. You and I, you know, we, we look around the world and there are many places where we see where things are not just, where things are not right where we have put in place institutions and systems and, and things that take a certain class of people or a certain race of people and they put them at a tremendous disadvantage. 
And we know that God's justice says that everyone is valuable, that they, are, they, are, they should be loved just as they are. And that they should also, we should be working to give people the opportunity to live fully into their God-given gifts and talents. That there's got to be some way to help all people have opportunity and to take advantage of the opportunity. You can't force someone to take advantage of an opportunity. Just like God doesn't coerce us into accepting God's grace. It's always by in. Now these, the first, these first four seem to be more like about a state of being or sometimes or a state of just what's, what's going on. This next one, this next one is an action. Blessed are those who are merciful for they will receive mercy. I think it's again from the message, when you care and when you are careful, meaning full of care, is when you are able to receive mercy. Again, we're great givers of stuff because we're in control of that, right? But when we give mercy, it also opens us up to perhaps receive it. And, and mercy is usually something that we give even when it doesn't necessarily look like it's deserved, <laughs> right? The person didn't earn it. It's not a quid pro quo. God, God doesn't just give us mercy because, oh, now you're, now you're acting right, so okay, here's some mercy for you. God is merciful to us in so many ways. And so we are called we are called to be merciful, not to let people run over us, not to let people take advantage of us or anybody else, not to do that, but to be merciful to people, to have understanding, compassion for them. Because then just then we might actually be able to receive it for ourselves and give it to ourselves. Most of us are not merciful to our, to our own selves. So it's part of this is an interior sort of thing that goes on as well. Can you give yourself mercy? Can you quit beating yourself up for that lost opportunity or for that thing you didn't get right? Can you give yourself some grace? Imagine. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Some people have said, really, as we look at in the, in the Greek, if you talk about the heart, you're, you're in some ways talking about the mind. And, and so to talk about this is to talk about being single-minded. It's or it's also perhaps about the condition of your inner core, that we're not so conflicted about things. That there's a purity about it, that, that we, be, we begin to have a center in our lives that holds. The other day I, I coined a phrase, it's, I said, you know, a friend of mine was talking about some things he was doing in his life, and I said, well, do these things that you're doing in your life, are they feeding the center or have they become the center? Are they feeding the center or are they become the center, these things that you're doing? I think it's just a great question. How is, how is whatever you're doing with your life and your prayer life, your faith life, your workouts, your thoughts, your intellect, your whatever, how is that feeding what is at the center of you? What are the values? What's at the heart of who you are as a human? God has a lot to say about that. And God hopefully is in that center to help you 
become more pure in heart. And these things that we're talking about, oftentimes being hungry, mourning, all those things can become things that sort of cloud up the center because we're hurting and we're worried and we're seeking our own dependence. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Later, Jesus teaches us to love our enemies. Wow, isn't this a flip on things? In this time, many people thought that Jesus was coming to raise up an army to take, take over, right? So blessed are the peacemakers. What kind, of, what kind of kingdom are you putting together here, Jesus? Bunch of namby-pambies? I mean, what is the deal here? Well, yeah, it flips it on its head. I mean, I, th- just this week, there's a couple things going on, and I texted with one of our elders. I said, I've got to remind myself in this situation, blessed are the peacemakers, because I do not want to be a peacemaker here. I want to be angry. But that's not what's called for. That's not what's called for. Blessed are the peacemakers. They will be called the children of God. What's interesting about that phrase is this actually may be, to talk about it historically, it may be a little bit of, a, a little bit of something to fly in the face of the zealots. The zealots were all about using violence to, to disrupt the Roman Empire. And so Jesus had those folks right in the midst of him. There was even a zealot in the disciples. So, you know, he's, he's also doing some stuff that's challenging their way of thinking very, very much so. And that's a political thing. So even Jesus can get a little political in the, in the midst of things, even something, blessed are the peacemakers. So just know that that's in here. Uh, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now this does not mean, and I think some Christians take it this way, that I'm supposed to go out and be offensive because if people don't like me, then I must be doing something right by God. I don't think so. What I think it means is that when we live following Christ, there are going to be people that it is going to disrupt. And they're not going to like it very much. And they may try to push us aside, keep us down, not want us to talk, say things nasty about us. Because the things that we get aligned with are often not popular in the world. But we shouldn't go out seeking to just make people mad. We follow where Christ is leading. We follow where God is leading. We trust in God for those things. Now, we sort of move from the Beatitudes into this salt and light discussion. Just hang in with me a little bit more. I know this is a lot. Like, it's been a fire hose today, I'm sure. So, and the the great thing is, is we're recording this. So you can go back and listen to it. You're the salt of the earth. If salt has lost its taste, how can its saltiness be restored? For those of us who are in the modern day, we're like, how does salt lose its taste? Salt doesn't lose its taste. Yes, it does, because back then it wasn't pure salt. It wasn't pure sodium chloride. It was mixed with other minerals and stuff. So it could go bad. It could go bad and did in that time. Salt was, was a currency of the time. A lot of times soldiers in that era were paid in salt because you needed salt for all kinds of stuff, to make bread, to you know, whatever, whatever they were doing, you know, you added it to your food, it, it, it brought out the flavor, you preserved things with salt, you know, just, that's just, it was, it was so crucial to the life of people then. And so to, to use it this way, and salt is, is referenced in the Bible a number of other times, 
They also use salt to make fire burn hotter. In some of the uh, passages, it'll say, um, you know, you're going to be salted with fire, which was a cleansing fire because a hotter fire purifies, right? That's why you get it. You got to get fire super hot to help purify iron. Use the salt to do that. But you're the salt of the earth. If salt has lost its taste, how can it be restored? You're a light in the world. And so part of this is live in a way that reflects the good news, that lets, that lets the light come out of you, that, that brings out, and I love that passage in the message, I'd love for you to go read it, where it says, be people who bring out the God flavors, bring people who show out the God colors in the world. That, I mean, that kind of metaphor is super cool. This is, this is the only place in the Bible where these two metaphors are put up against each other or next to each other. So it's fascinating to me that Jesus may have done this, put these both together, or they may have been two separate teachings, but I like how Matthew has, has brought them together. What I love about the salt and, and the light thing is that for those of us and for those Christians who might think, well, we're supposed to withdraw from the world and create this, this beautiful community, that this just flies in the face of it. We don't withdraw from the world and we don't condemn the world. We live in a way that reflects the kingdom because we have received the kingdom. We don't withdraw from the world. We don't condemn the world. We, we reflect the gospel of Christ in that salt and that light because we have received the kingdom. Some people try to make the Beatitudes and some of these, some of these ethical and moral things that we're going to be talking about later, make them into like, well, if you, if you got to live this way, you got to live that way, you got to do this, you got to do this, or else, or else you're not a good Christian or person or whatever. That's not necessarily the intention. This is, you have received the kingdom, now go live as a citizen of the kingdom. You have received grace, go out and be grace. Because Jesus came and he entered into our suffering, he entered into our world, he lived and he laughed and he cried and he died so that we might understand that we receive the kingdom not because of what we've done, but because of what he's done. And then that calls us, just as we are, to move forward in faith and to grow, to be more like Christ. You've heard it said, blessed be, may you be blessed. Amen.